Good evening, everyone. I wanted to begin by letting you know that uh, I'll be leaving tomorrow morning. And first of all, it's really been wonderful to meet uh, a number of you. For those of you who signed up for the interviews with me, and also I wanted to give a big thank you to many of you who I sat in on your interviews. Uh, it It was a fantastic opportunity for me. I think most importantly, though, I, I want to thank you for your effort and your practice. I don't think you could see it as I was sitting over there, but I was actually, the entire time that I've been here, writing on your momentum in your practice. So thank you very much for your, your effort and your practice. It, it, it inspires my practice, and it's that which I'm going to be bringing home with me. So, so thank you very much for that. Tonight, I wanted to begin the talk by sharing with you a dream I had. Actually, it's a dream I had a couple years ago. I was teaching in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I was teaching a teacher residency. And so I was there for about a month teaching on a particular theme that that fits in with the theme I'll be speaking about tonight. And it was a very interesting dream. I found myself in this dream in this huge room with all of these people milling around in the room. And in one corner, actually this has happened in a few of my dreams, in one corner was uh, the Zen master who I'd uh, practiced with when I was a Zen monk. He was simply sitting in the corner of this huge room where all of us were milling around and just gazing upon this whole event. And then kind of towards the front of the room, there was this how to describe it, it was this kind of this orange flame that was just kind of moving about. And for some reason, it, it, it had this feeling sense that it was representing, when I thought back on the, on the dream, this dilemma, this dilemma that all of us are facing, the dilemma of birth and death, the dilemma of suffering. And there it was, it was flickering and moving And what people were doing is that they would go up in front of it and they would do something, sometimes the weirdest things, you know, dance or do some kind of mantra or chanting, all in an attempt to become free of this thing. So they were attempting to become free of this this dilemma of birth and death, to become free of all this suffering. But it never worked. So somebody would go up there and then they would disappear as if the flame would engulf them. And this was kind of just casually going on. All these people there, the Zen master in the back overlooking all of this. And the other thing that was in the dream that was a little bit disturbing is that there was a palpable feeling that I had that the, the name of the game in that room was is that all of us were going to have to come face to face with this flame sooner or later. That was the deal. So people, you'd see people have this courage and come up to the flame and try their thing, always unsuccessfully. So for me, when I, when I was faced with this, this thing of knowing that I was going to have to come face to face with this, I thought to myself, I want to go to the beach. <laughs> As they say, why, why do today what you can put off till tomorrow? So that's what I started to try to do. Is I tried to figure out you know, how to get out of this room and trying to get the things I needed for going to the beach. and <laughs> I didn't want to face it. So as, as I was milling around doing that, I was, I was going in and out of the room. 
I eventually came back into the room. I think I, 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 I needed to get my swimsuit, so I'd found my swimsuit, so I was ready to go to the beach. <laughs> and, and as I went back into the room, I saw the most striking thing. So what appeared before me was there was, it was more like this archetypal image, and it was this image of people holding hands. Just this image of people holding hands. And when it came face to face with this red flame, the flame disappeared. And there was a feeling that finally all of us were free. For me, it was a powerful dream in the sense that that so often we conceptualize or we imagine awakening to be something in the context of, I wake up. It's me who wakes up. Awakening's about me and my life. And yet this dream was telling me something different. That maybe something closer to what's going on is that we actually all wake up or we wake up together. Or there's a value in having this broader sense underneath our practice here. There's a, there's a number of discourses, actually, just about four or five discourses in the, in the Pali Canon that, that kind of have the same construction, where the, the Buddha talks about four kinds of people that are found in the world. The first kind of person is a person who practices um, neither for their own benefit nor for the benefit of others. And then a, a second person who practices for their own benefit but not for the benefit of others. The third person being does not practice for their own benefit. Which one am I forgetting? Does not practice for others, but practices for their own benefit. And then the other one is is the practitioner who practices both for the benefit of oneself and others. And of course, what the the, the Buddha is is really emphasizing is the the importance. The, the, The most refined practitioner is one who practices for the benefit of others and oneself. And this is what I'd like to speak about tonight, is this quality. Later on in, in Buddhism, this flowers into this, this idea of bodhicitta. Literally, bodhicitta means, bodhi means enlightenment or awakening. And citta is, uh, can be translated like heart or heart-mind. And there's two aspects to bodhicitta, the relative bodhicitta and absolute bodhicitta. A relative bodhicitta is what, I'm, uh, what I was just mentioning. It's really this, this altruistic intention. Having the aspiration to awaken, but having the aspiration to awaken for the benefit of all beings, so that all beings may be free. And this relative bodhicitta is intertwined with absolute bodhicitta, which is, which is the realization of emptiness, or, or you could say the wisdom that sees through the illusion a separate fixed sense of self. Or you could say this insight into the fundamental nature of things. Yeah, so tonight will be uh, me sharing with you some reflections on practicing for the benefit of ourselves as well as for others, of, of cultivating this, this bodhicitta. And, and I offer it so that you can decide if this is something that fits and that will fit into your own practice. 
And in particular, I'll probably be spending more time speaking about this quality of relative bodhicitta, but if, if, there's, if time allows to talk about how this insight or this realization of emptiness and fits into this or is intertwined into relative bodhicitta and how we can understand it in a way that fits in with the practice that you're doing tonight. In terms of the practicality of how we bring this, this quality of bodhicitta into our practice, I, I guess I want to remind you of the instructions that Carol gave, I think, a few mornings ago, where she invited us to have to check in with our motivation. It could be even before a sitting meditation or before each sitting and walking meditation or just in the morning. Of having, placing this motivation that may my practice go to the benefit of all beings. And then she was clear, forgetting about that. Not necessarily forgetting about it, but setting aside so that we just begin your practice. And then the third point was sharing the merit of our practice after a sitting meditation or a walking meditation. Very, very small addition to our practice. But for me, it really makes a huge difference within, within my spiritual path. And so as a way of beginning, I want to say a few things about how I feel that that it has been an essential part of my practice and how it's been helpful both for, let's say, metaphorically, you know, those sunny days that we have on retreat, as well as those stormy days. For those sunny days where things like feel like they're unfolding smoothly, it reminds me, it reminds me, um, not to take ownership for the unfolding of this path. It undermines this idea of me or I, of here I am waking up, or this is mine. That, that it gives me a sense of, of this being uh, something that's happening on a much broader, broader level than this, this confined world of me. And on the dark days, you can say the stormy days, it's been incredibly helpful as well. I remember this when I was a Zen monk. There was a, a period of time where um, it was actually probably the darkest time of my life. Uh, when I was, there was a, a, a part of my, my life when I was a Zen monk. I, I hesitate telling you this because I feel like the, the stories I'm telling you about my life as a Zen monk are all quite dark. <laughs> It actually might be true, but uh, <laughs> let's move on from there. But I remember there was a, a period, really the, the darkest time of my life. It was, and some of you probably experienced this, where you have this feeling where you're going through the motions of living, but it lacks the feeling of really being alive. It's, it's like you're moving around, but you feel dead on the inside. That kind of darkness. Maybe some of you have experienced that. It's rough. It's even rougher practicing through that. I mean, just having the sense of keeping your, your head above water. And I remember there was something so important, and it was just around simple things, just around, for example, going to the zendo or the meditation hall. Even, if, even in the midst of the feeling like my practice was worth nothing, that huge doubt that I was speaking about a few talks ago. But somehow when it was for the benefit of the others, there was a space around that darkness that allowed me to navigate it. 
it gave me a space around how confining the self-centric world can be. And it was just about having this, this sense that this practice is for the benefit of all beings. So I feel like it's important. It can be really something that, that, that gives life to the practice that you're doing here on this retreat. And it's not only that that I, I feel like it, it, it brings into our practice, but I feel like it, it brings our hearts into touch with a beautiful quality of mind. What are we talking about here? We're talking about compassion and having it interfused, intertwined with, with our entire day, of, of, day and night of practice. And I'd like to give an example of compassion. There's so many examples of compassion out there. And this is one that, that I come back to again and again. Maybe it's because of its simplicity. And in that simplicity, there's, there's something profound about it. And it's the story of, of this man, uh, Lorenzo Perone. Some of you maybe have heard of him. He was an Italian bricklayer during, the, during World War II. And he was actually working at Auschwitz. There was a number of bricklayers that were, that were brought over to, do, to actually build more buildings around Auschwitz. And he actually was the man instrumental in, in helping the writer and the chemist, um, Primo Levi, actually survive uh, Auschwitz. Primo Levi lived there for a year. Most people in Auschwitz did not live longer than three months. So I'd like to share with you some words from uh, a book by Primo Levi about uh, uh, Lorenzo Perone. He says, an Italian civilian worker brought me a piece of bread and the remainder of his ration every day for six months. This is Lorenzo Perone he's talking about. He gave me a vest of his, of his full of patches. He wrote a postcard on my behalf to Italy and brought me the reply. For all this, he neither asked nor accepted any reward. Because he was good and simple and that did not think that one did good for a reward. And then he goes on. He says, I believe that it was really due to Lorenzo that I am alive today. And this is the striking part. And he says, and not so much for his material aid. More so for his having constantly reminded me by his presence, by his natural and plain manner of being good, that there still existed a just world outside our own. Lorenzo was a human being. His humanity was pure and uncontaminated. He was outside this world of negation. Thanks to Lorenzo, I managed not to forget that I myself was a human being. To me, I feel like that's such a striking and beautiful expression of compassion. Such a a simple act of, of bread and clothing and more important, what did he say? He said is, is it was Lorenzo's presence that actually allowed him to continue. 
Shantideva, who was an 8th century Indian practitioner who was uh, known to be the author of uh, a text called the Bodhicharya Vitara, which is usually translated as uh, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. Really offers some beautiful words around this intention, this, this intention of um, awakening for the benefit of all beings. Or I was saying practicing for the benefit of oneself and for others. And it's actually one of the most beloved texts in, in Tibetan Buddhism. I think the Dalai Lama says that this is his favorite, favorite text. So I'd like to share with you a little bit about uh, from Shantideva talking about this intention of his and the words he brings to it. And remember, this is an Indian text, so it's, it's a little over the top, but I like a little over the top. says, may I be a protector for those who are without protectors, a guide for travelers, and a boat, a bridge, and a ship for those who wish to cross over. May I be a lamp for those who seek light, a bed for those who seek rest, and may I be a servant for all beings who desire a servant. To all sentient beings, may I be a wish-fulfilling gem, a a vase of good fortune, an efficacious mantra, a great medication, a wish-fulfilling tree, and a wish-granting cow. Just as earth and other elements are useful in various ways to innumerable sentient beings dwelling throughout infinite space, so may I be, in various ways, a source of life for the sentient beings present throughout space until they are all liberated. And then towards the end of, the, of, the, of this text, the Bodhicharya Vitara, he, he gives a word to this, this um, quite profound vow or dedication. And he says, as long as space and time endure, and for as long as beings remain, remained, Until then, may I too endure to dispel the misery of the world. It's a beautiful movement of the heart. What a a beautiful thing to have underlie our practice while we're here. You might have noticed this. I feel like this is so important because maybe you've seen how, how our minds are so confined by this self-centric world that runs counter to this intention. Have you noticed that yet? I, I appreciated Sally's talk, I think it was a couple talks ago, where she was talking about the nature of thought and noticing that so many of thought centers around these three questions. Am I okay? Was I okay? Will I be okay? What a perfect description of a self-centric world where that's all that the mind can think about is if I'm okay, will I be okay? Or was I okay? It's even around our our meditation practice. It's so much this self-centric world. I come here. Who comes to, to IMS? I come to IMS. I practice, I'm mindful, 
Maybe I will gain insight. I, I will be kinder. Maybe I will be more free. Maybe I'll be more intelligent. Maybe my life will be better or my circumstances will be better. Have you noticed such thoughts? And I want to point out this, nothing inherently bad about these thoughts. They can actually be wholesome aspirations. And of course, very useful in using this kind of language when speaking with others many times. The, problems, the problem happens is when you deeply believe in that, deeply live by that, where you're only living in a self-centric world. So again, there's nothing wrong necessarily with this conceptualization. The problem is getting lost in it, being confined by that. John Ruskin once said, when a person is wrapped up in themselves, they make a pretty small package. And I'm sure many of you are here, you're probably here, many of you, because you've tasted the suffering and stress that comes from living in a narrow, self-centric world. But you're also probably here because you've, you've maybe tasted how this practice can, can begin to allow you to break out of that, that confinement. So what I want to uh, spend some time with right now is, is this question of how can we understand, how can we understand practicing for the benefit of oneself and others when on a long retreat? How do, how do we understand that? How do we understand this? And in order to elucidate this point, I'd like to share with you a discourse from the Buddha. It's uh, 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 the Sedaka Sutta. It's about this, it's, it's, it's the story of the Buddha telling the story about these acrobats. So the Buddha begins by addressing the, the monastics and he tells the story. He tells the story about these two bamboo acrobats. And these bamboo acrobats have this stunt that they do where they make money. They have a bamboo pole and the lead bamboo acrobat, he climbs up on top of the bamboo pole and he's balancing there on top of the pole. And then his assistant, Medikatalika, this woman, climbs up the bamboo pole and then climbs up over him on top of his shoulders. So it's quite a feat. And then, and then once they balance up there, they get off and then they collect their, their, their fees for their, for their show. And the lead acrobat says to his assistant, Medikatalika, he says to her, listen, this is what's going to work. If you look after me, and I look after you, then this is gonna go just fantastic and just great and we'll get down off the bamboo safely and we'll collect our, our fees. And the assistant, Medica Talika, she says to him, uh-uh, it doesn't work that way. The way it works is if I look after myself and you look after yourself, then we'll be able to get off the bamboo pole and collect our fees. And then the Buddha continues and he says, ah, yeah, just, just like the assistant said, just like Medikatalika said to, to her master. And he goes on, he says, just this, this sense of I will look after myself 
so should you practitioners practice the establishment of mindfulness. You should also practice the establishment of mindfulness by saying, I will look after others. Looking after oneself, one looks after others. Looking after others, one looks after oneself. And how does one look after others by looking after oneself? By practicing mindfulness, by developing it, by doing it a lot. And how does one look after oneself? By looking after others, by patience, by non-harming, by loving kindness, by caring for others. Thus, looking after oneself, one looks after others, and looking after others, one looks after oneself. It's very clear, right? When, when we take care of ourselves, or when we engage in mindfulness, we're taking care of others. There's this quality of taking care of others by doing this practice. And when we're cultivating a skillful way of taking care of others, cultivating these wholesome states of mind, such as loving kindness and compassion, we're actually taking care of ourselves. What I want to point out about this is that this this quality of practicing for oneself and for others is actually already happening when you're on retreat. So it's actually impossible for it not to happen. And I think it's important to reflect that just being here is affecting so many other people. Sally mentioned this, I think, on the the first night. How as you're sitting here on this retreat, people that have been on this three-month retreat previously know that you're here and they're inspired. Or friends that you have that might be in your sangha or just in your community. Some of them probably are quite inspired. I know from many of the staff here, there's a whole different vibe here. There's a whole different quality here when this retreat goes on. Simply your willingness to be here has actually a a huge impact on others. And, And I feel like it's important to remember that. So it can start, your practice can start to break out of the confinement of the self centric world. And and I find it a striking image, just the image of balance, right? Just on this bamboo pole. And what allows things to remain in balance is paying attention. That's where where all of us that are involved don't get harmed. When we pay attention in this particular way with mindfulness, we don't get harmed in this world. There's less harm. And, and I find the image quite striking too because if, if you think of the image of being on top of that bamboo pole, it gives me the sense of this quality that we're all intertwined with one another. This is the situation that we find ourselves in. We find ourselves on top of a bamboo pole with all of the other beings that are in this universe. Which I think really po- points to this quality, this interdependent quality of, of the world that we live in. There is a, a sutra that came out in, later on in Buddhism called the Avatamsaka Sutra, usually translated as the Flower Garland Sutra. And the last ch- chapter of that sutra is the story of um, 
this young boy, uh, Sudhana, who ventures on this spiritual journey. And out of this journey, actually, we get one of the images that, that, that is presented is the image of Indra's net that some of you might be familiar with. Indra's net is this, it's this net that, that expands out infinitely into all directions. So it's this infinitely expanding outward net. And in each node of the net, there is a jewel. And if you were to look into one of those jewels, you would see, see reflected in one of those jewels all of the other jewels within the net. One jewel, you see all the other jewels, all the infinite number of jewels within one jewel. This interdependent quality. This is the, the reality that we live in. And I want to bring that up because I, I just want to spend a little more time about this, this idea that this practice reaches much farther than your own lives. And I want to give an example of this more on the healing level, which I find striking. Because not only is, is this about awakening, but for many of us, this is about uh, healing as well. And there's a story I heard of a, a woman who um, was basically healing say this. Let me back up. There's a woman that had been in many abusive relationships. So she was a person who got into a relationship and then it got really violent and she would exit that relationship, usually eventually, with difficulty, only to find herself yet again in another relationship um, that was abusive and violent like the, the previous one. But then what started to happen is she really started to, to truly heal, to really deeply heal from this dynamic. And it was interesting the way she conceptualized it. What she, she realized is that she was healing from a dynamic that, that it felt like to her, which she was really clear about, stretched back for generations in her family. And, and when she started to get this, it was an incredible journey for her. Because what she started to have is she started to have this feeling that she was stopping a dynamic that went well beyond her life. And it, was, it was fascinating, you know, from her kind of cultural worldview perspective. She started having these dreams and she started to have this sense that her ancestors, especially the women in her family, were supporting her. And not only supporting her, it was as if they were being healed as well from what she was doing. It was a beautiful description. There's something really powerful about this description that it wasn't, just, it wasn't just her that was waking up. She wasn't the only one that was healing, I should say. But generations that had come before her and, of course, generations coming after her that didn't have to experience that. And, of course, you might have a different worldview, but I, I want to point out that actually the same kind of thing is going on here on retreat. Isn't that a cool thing just to consider? Just, just to consider that you're putting an end to, to old habitual patterns that in this framework probably have actually been going on for generations within your family. What a cool thing that they finally begin to get to, to stop. 
They might course through our minds again and again and again. But gradually, they stop to have that, that stranglehold on this system. So generations of habitual patterns stopping because of this retreat. And of course, in terms of Buddhist cosmology, it's endless lifetimes that have been built up of this. Do you see how this fits well with this image of Indra's net? That this is all intertwined what you're doing here on this retreat. When you sit here, it's going to reverberate. There's no way it can't. There's no way that this can happen in a vacuum. And maybe at times in your practice you can feel this, have the sense of maybe this worry. I'm being so self-centered, focusing, sitting here, struggling with my stuff. But the fact is, it actually isn't your stuff. It goes well beyond you. For better and for worse, it's what you've inherited. So that's the amazing thing about this practice. It's actually impossible to be completely self-centered when we begin to really sink into this practice. It's virtually impossible. I mean, you should maybe try it. See if you can have the sense of, no, I'm going to make my my practice completely be self-centered and only have it be about me. Maybe you take those cosmic scissors and see if you can cut out some of the the jewels from Indra's net. But it doesn't work that way. It's impossible. And I feel like the other... The other benefit of having the sense is is really getting the sense, and this is really important, as I mentioned, that all of the things that arise really have nothing to do with you. It's really the activity of this mind that's been conditioned by all these patterns that come before us. So what a noble thing to do to actually sit down with them, to allow for something new or something freeing to arise in this world. And I want to just reiterate I'm sure you can see now, this is not about doing something different while you're here. Of course, doing the small things that that Carol mentioned and that I repeated at the beginning of the talk. It's, It's more about allowing this practice to have a broader sense to it, to allow it not to be confined by this self centric world. It's about letting go of this fixed sense of self that runs so deep. I want to spend a little bit of time now speaking about how this altruistic intention, this, this intention to, to, for awakening, for liberation, for the benefit of all beings, is intertwined with, uh, with absolute bodhicitta, this wisdom, this wisdom about emptiness. So basically, what's all this emptiness stuff? Was it about? And how does it fit with Vipassana and more importantly with, with compassion here? And I want to simplify it. So this is not going to be a talk about the 
some of you who are familiar with Tibetan Buddhism, the 16 kinds of, of emptiness or the 18 kinds of emptiness or the 20 kinds of emptiness. But to see if, if we can situate it within the practice that all of us are doing here. Simply put, emptiness refers to um, this fact that all phenomena lacks an inherent fixed um, existence or fixed uh, essence to it. You you find this in the early discourses. Ananda was hanging out with the Buddha and he says, Venerable One, what does it mean that the world is empty? He says, oh, and the Buddha basically says that what is meant by the, the world is empty is that the world is empty of, of uh, anything pertaining to a self. It's empty of a self. There's this quality of not-self or non-self within experience. And of course, as, as Buddhism, later on in Buddhism, this expands to really seeing that there's no kind of fixed kind of inherent existence with anything that's found within this universe. So how do we relate this to, to this, this practice here? The way I do it is getting the sense that, that this definition of emptiness, this more simple way of understanding it is, is it basically means that what we're experiencing is not as real as we usually make it out to be. So for example, Guy gave that example of, of walking in the forest and feeling like there's a snake there and the fear arises, but actually it's just a rope. And it's the process of seeing, oh, this is not as real as I thought it was. That's the quality of emptiness. The mind is placing much more there than is really there. Where Joseph shared with us the, the um, quote from Deagle Kensei Rinpoche about how our thoughts are like a rainbow. And these thoughts, these thoughts that course through these minds create this whole reality that feels so solid, but it's more like a rainbow. When you really see it, it's not completely there. It's not as real as we, we think it is. So I want to give some examples of, uh, of this just to be crystal clear about it. And I want to give a kind of a big gross example and then get more refined in terms of our meditation. To me, the, the best example is, have you ever... Um, sent off an email, maybe an email where you had to think about what you were writing. There's a lot involved in the email. And you send it off, you click send, and then a day goes by, and then two two days go by, and then these thoughts start to creep up, like, why aren't they writing me? I think they're really pissed off at me. I know why they're not writing at me, writing to me is because of those sentences that I put in the email. And it's because of when I saw them the, the other day at the market where, where um, I didn't say hello to them. And then maybe a few days go by and you get an email and you find out that they were just sick. And there's the realization of, oh, wow, I created this whole world that doesn't exist, that's not real. That's noticing how uh, really the empty nature of, of, this, of this thought world. It's empty. And of course, that's what's happening on this retreat here. I'm sure you've seen all the stories about ourselves and others and how huge they can start to feel. And the practice is, is able to see that, oh, this is just a thought that arises and passes away. 
And have you noticed when, when the mind really sees that clearly of how powerful that is, how freeing that can be? Just that, just to be able to note with clarity thinking or wandering or planning. It's seeing that it's not as real as you once thought it was. And of course, there's deeper levels to that. There could be even uh, uh, seeing the empty nature of this thought that I am here and all of you are out there, or I am here and the world is out there. Or sometimes it feels like awareness has some kind of location to it. And with practice, a lot of times that gets undermined. So empty in that sense. So this kind of emptiness, it's actually embedded in the practice that you're doing, and it undermines the belief in in this constructed reality that the mind has created. When that happens, what's happening? That's that's basically dismantling this self-centric world. Because that self-centric world is a created world that's not real. And you might notice, once that begins to to dismantle, a natural quality of compassion naturally arises. And and you might want to do an experiment around this. I I find this quite fascinating, to notice when when the mind is not as lost in conceptualizing about the world, sometimes what I notice is there's much more of this quality of intimacy, this kind of spiritual intimacy with with the world around me. Notice if that's true or not. For me, that's where compassion truly arises, is through that, that intimacy. I, I want to point out also, though, to make sure to point out what, what emptiness is not. This is really important. Because a lot of times there can be this thought that what emptiness is, is, is this notion or this thought that everything is empty. None of this matters. And actually... Even the phrase, everything is empty, or none of it matters, what is that? That's a thought. So it's not like we're trying to latch onto a thought and say, this is emptiness. It's more the process of seeing that things are not as real as, as we believe them to be. Not about nothing exists, or that all of it's meaningless. And, and I'd like to share with you a, a, a description, a view, that I think can be confused by confused with, with emptiness. You might know this quote. I hope some of you do. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. If you might remember, these are the words of Macbeth, the the play that, that Shakespeare wrote. And to remind you, he says these words when his world is falling apart. He's done some pretty heinous crimes. And everyone's leaving him. His wife has just died. So his life and his rule is is falling apart. And for him, nothing matters. His wife's death signifies nothing. His actions signify nothing. 
and life, which is this poor player, it, it, it means nothing. So emptiness is, about, is not about my life is meaningless or that nothing matters. It's important to remember that the Buddha was teaching in a specific context, that of suffering and the end of suffering. And actually, he encouraged us to take up really important quote-unquote stories, such as the story that our actions have consequences and the importance of, of ethical behavior that results from that. How do we allow this practice of emptiness to unfold or this realization of emptiness to unfold that I'm speaking about? As I was mentioning in my last talk, it's really easy. It's simply engaging in the practice that you're doing. Your job description is super simple. Aware, simply being aware with this quality of of intelligence or kindness that's been mentioned again and again and again. Relying on mindfulness. Insight and realization actually aren't in our job description. We actually don't have to worry about that, which is such a wonderful thing. (laughs) Sticking with the job description so that these can start to move through our practice. So again, this, this altruistic intention, having a practice that's for the benefit of all beings, and again, just those simple instructions that, that Carol gave us. You might at the beginning of, of each sit or each sit and each walk, walking or in the morning, just placing that intention really clearly. And then at the end of sits and maybe even a walking meditation, sharing the, sharing the merit. And again, it's not something you have to think about throughout the day. And I'd like to end with a dedication. It was, it's connected with Red Tara that I feel really speaks to both the absolute and relative quality of bodhicitta. It goes like this. Throughout my many lives and until this moment, whatever virtue I have accomplished, including the merit generated by this practice and all that I will ever attain, this I offer for the welfare of sentient beings. May sickness, war, famine, and suffering be decreased for every living being, while their wisdom and compassion increase in this and every future life. May may I clearly perceive all experiences to be as insubstantial as the dream fabric of the night and instantly awaken to perceive the pure wisdom display in the arising of every phenomenon. May I quickly attain enlightenment in order to work ceaselessly for the liberation of all sentient beings. Let's, Let's actually sit just for a few moments here. 